This is a study in the book of Job. And um, before I say anything else, let's begin with prayer. Lord God, thank you for the clear presentation of the gospel this morning. And we do indeed, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, wish to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you. Insofar as Job is a, is a great story as to how to do that, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would guide us in our understanding of this Old Testament book in the light of the gospel of grace. Uh, together we praise you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. You know, Gil and I are constantly conversing about what to do in these Sunday school times. And uh, way back uh, several months ago, I, I preached on Psalm 66 um, under the title Resilient Thanksgiving. And uh, I came across, I, I said at the time in that message, I came across some letters from my mother that I had not seen. My mother was had been deceased for 12 years at that point, and we had just never gone through some of the stuff that she had and some of the boxes. And uh, in going through that, I found a journal, a journal that described uh, the time when uh, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was my senior year of high school. And uh, she described in those letters uh, that in her Bible study, the next book up was the book of Job. And she just didn't want to go there. So she decided that she would skip that um, biblical book. And, uh, and yet then, I was in a book club as a senior in high school, um, a Christian book club. And the book that arrived in the mail a couple days after she had made that decision was a verse-by-verse -verse commentary in the book of Job. <laughs> you know, uh, there's, uh, Paul says at one point in his letter to the Corinthians that the Lord will give you, won't give you that which you cannot bear. And with what he does give you, he'll always give you a way to deal with it. I think some people actually avoid the book of Job because they feel if they really get into it and understand what God's doing here, then they'll be responsible for the maturity that Job reflected. It's almost like, please, keep that kind of graduate school uh, discipleship a little bit away from me. I don't really want to be responsible for that kind of insight and that kind of wisdom. I've entitled it, The Gospel According to Job. And one of the things that I hope to bring out is the, the close affinity between Job and Jesus. Uh, it comes in several ways, and I'll repeat this as we go on, but Job gives us a picture of righteousness. Jesus gives us a picture of righteousness. Job is subjected to a mean battle with Satan. Jesus is subjected to a mean battle with Satan. God takes great delight in Job's righteousness and Job's resilience. And of course, the Father takes great delight in the Son's sacrifice. So we're going to see connections, gospel connections between Job and Jesus. Uh, the five lessons, we've got five weeks in Job. Um, 
And it would be wonderful if you brought either your device or your Bible and your Bible on your device um, to our time. Uh, I've usually, in classes, at least my whole first year, I think, of being here, uh, would print the passage of Scripture out on the study guide. But I've decided that we all need to grow up and we need to bring our Bibles. And uh, I don't need to copy out large sections of Job for you. So if you and uh, if you need a Bible, I'd, I'll give you a Bible. Um, but uh, bring a Bible if you wouldn't mind. These are the five lessons stated here. God will have his way with the righteous, first up. Number two, what looks like bondage to us may be proof of our freedom. Three, on February 12th, we will learn from Job how to comfort those who suffer, what lessons Job has for that. Four, true piety is honest and bold and is centered on God. Job really gives us a wonderful lesson in spirituality and what we can actually say to God. And then five, a deepening understanding of God in his ways is costly. God will have his way with the righteous. Let me just start by reading from Job chapter 1. And I'm going to catch the door just for sound. There was a man of the land of Uz. Now, immediately to the Western mind, is that the land of Oz? I mean, is this fiction? Is this drama? Is this story? Well, there's drama, there's poetry, but I see this in the Hebrew mentality as such that Job is an historical person, that he lives uh, in uh, east of the Sea of Galilee, in that northern region. That's where Oz is mentioned uh, in two other places in the Bible. as a real place. So I, I don't think that this is a, a fictional um, characterization of where Job lived at all, um, but a real place. How to situate Job in time is a is kind of a mystery because there's no specific reference to like Abraham or, or Moses or the law. Um, So it would seem that this particular uh, description, Job, is in the patriarchal era, but not necessarily connected with Abraham or with Israel, with Moses. But there is quite a developed sense of moral character and law that's there. You might think of Job sort of on the same order as Melchizedek. Melchizedek seems to come out of nowhere, and yet becomes a wonderful type of Christ himself. Job, as well, seems to come out of nowhere. Uh, And that may be something of what uh, the scope of the universal claim of the gospel is all about, that uh, it's always working beyond what our limited understanding may be. So if we put Job somewhere between that sort of um, patriarchal period with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as an individual who's off the Israel radar. But nevertheless, God is working in his life 
kind of the same way that God worked in the life of Melchizedek, the same way he worked in the lives of the Magi, that the scope of the gospel is bigger. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And there was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest or wealthiest of all the people of the East. Remember Jesus' comment in the context of the rich young ruler, it's really hard for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet here's a man who seems to very much live in the context of a close and abiding relationship with the Lord. He fears God, turns away from evil. He's blameless and upright. He really is a man righteous in the righteousness of God. Not self-righteous, but righteousness in the righteousness of God. And he's wealthy. How would you interpret he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. My brother-in-law has pastored for many years in Nebraska, and he said one of the things you don't ask a farmer is how many acres, because that's just like asking how wealthy are you. And so it's a rude question. Well, uh, that gives us, I mean, I think, a hint of what these figures mean. Who has... Uh, 3,000 camels. Camels. 3,000 of them. This would be the business equivalent to a guy who owns a shipping company. What are camels for? The caravans for carting cargo. So Job is an international businessman. That's what that number figures factors in. 7,000 sheep, uh, he's not going to go hungry, um, both through the wool and as well as through the meat. Uh, he's, uh, he's also a meat packer. Um, 500 yoke of oxen, his farms are really big. 500 female donkeys, he also has Uber and a, a car, uh, you know, a, a transportation system with that as well. All of that to say is that Job is immensely wealthy, really wealthy. Right here, there's only one description of how his righteousness plays out in daily life. When you get into the book of Job uh, in chapters 29 and 30, he will outline in depth the way his righteousness is played out in his life. What he didn't do and what he did do. And it's a fascinating description. We'll look at that later. But here there's only one illustration of how he is righteous. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one, of his, each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. They celebrated their birthdays. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. 
he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did this continually. This is what is highlighted as a sign of his spiritual character that he was so concerned about his children's relationship with God that he took it upon himself to pray for them and to sacrifice on their behalf. And that was his custom. The humility, the grace, the dependence on the mercy of God, the acting justly, the loving mercy, the walking humbly before God, that's how it's illustrated first up in Job. Job is an interesting book. You know, it's part of the wisdom literature of Scripture that that includes uh, Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And one way to look at that, where Job fits in the wisdom literature, if you were taking those five books, okay, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Psalms, what would be at the center of the wisdom literature? You're looking at kind of a dynamic center of those five books, which kind of draws them all in. Well, certainly, I think all of them speak to that, but which of the books would you put in the center of that? the Psalms? The Psalms are sort of that magnetic center, that gravity that pulls in all of the different aspects that are reflected in wisdom literature. So then, if you've got Psalms in the center, and they'll kill me if I write on this, um, what, and you put... Let's put Job and Proverbs and Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes at the four corners. Okay, you can, you're intelligent. Psalms in the middle, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Now, now this is where it may get a little tricky in keeping with my scheme, but I'm going to keep this rhetorically going. What would be the contrast in your mind to Job? And there's really no right or wrong answer to this. I have a, a particular one that I'm fishing for. But what would be the contrast to Job in the wisdom literature? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes? Why? Um, futility of life, of, of exploring wealth, wisdom, and um, okay. passions. Okay. Okay. Uh, kind of contrasting picture between Job and Ecclesiastes for sure and the undoing of all the things that we have just read that Job has as not being fulfilling. And yet Job is fulfilling because he fears the Lord. Anybody else want to enter a, a suggestion? You've got Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, the magnetic center being the Psalms, pulling all of these emotions and life together. Job is on the edge, as you know from the story. He is on the edge. Which of these books is least on the edge emotionally? Proverbs. Proverbs. So Proverbs is describing this kind of constant routine of life, 
having to do with family and life and sex and money and routines of life. And there's nothing routine about Job. He is just on the edge. So this is, I can see where Ecclesiastes fits, but Job and Proverbs tend to be, I think, more in paradox. And then you've got Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, which I keep putting them on different sides. Hope that's not confusing to you. Um, but again, the paradox between Ecclesiastes, where life is just awful, and I can't figure it out, to the Song of Songs, where life can't get any better. I'm in love. And it's just interesting to see the, the, that sort of uh, organization of the wisdom literature. And then we've got Job in there. Picking it up, after Job has illustrated for us the nature of his righteousness, or the author of Job has done so. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan, you know, the Lord is saying to Satan, Where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. This is one thing that's interesting, is Satan is not omnipresent. He's localized in his own God created supernatural being, um, he does not have uh, the freedom. He has to move about. From going to and fro on earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, second question, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him. None like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. There's something about the dynamic of the four dimensions, north, south, east, and west. Oftentimes in descriptions in scripture, the, the four attributes describe something of the totality of the person. So he's, he's righteous, he's blameless, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. It's, it's sort of a, a poetic way of describing the person but the, the issue here is, why? With friends like the Lord who needs enemies, the arch enemy, the one looking to accuse, the one looking to indict, the one who's got it in for you and is out for you, and the Lord says, well, hey, have you seen my servant Job? Yeah, there's nobody like him. He's blameless, he's upright, he fears me turns away from evil. Take that, Satan. First lesson for us uh, in Job is, is God will have his way with the righteous. You know, life is a whole lot larger than our um, best life now or happiness or, or joy. I mean, we, we, un we begin to understand there's a whole lot more at stake in this life than we may have thought. Job shows us this. A whole lot more at stake in the testimony of our families than our peace and prosperity. That would be the message of the Bible. God has not come so that we have a, a better life, an easier life. Uh, 
Now, better life, I mean, I, I definitely think my life is better. But it's, I guess, how you begin to define better. Um, Satan takes the bait. Verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing, for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. You've increased the land, but stretch out your hand. Touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. This is just because you've given him prosperity. This is because he's successful. That's why he likes you. That's why he respects you. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a message to Job. You may know this story. One after one after one, everything's destroyed in Job's life his cattle, his herds, and then to top it all off, a tornado takes out the house where everybody has been gathered and all his children are dead. It's certainly worth reading, and I'm hoping that in the course of this week that you'll read it. Verse 20, Then Job rose and arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Said a last word that catches you. He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. Again, four things, but now the fifth is he worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He'll never charge God with wrong. He'll come perilously close, I guess you might say. He will lash out with such vehemence against God, and yet always within the respect of the Lord being the Lord, never challenging that. I think it's so important for Christians to pose the worst-case scenario for their faith, as hard as that is. Um, for most of us, I think it would be the loss of a child. That would be the worst-case scenario. Um, can we worship God in the light of that loss? And that's a question that I do think, uh, I, I just think the Bible invites us to ask and to determine. To determine, as it were, ahead of time well, you can't really do that, I know, ahead of time. But I do think it's a question that is before you and God, for me and God, needs to be dealt with. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, let's keep the story, the drama going. I, I do think there's a lot of poetry and a lot of crafting in the Job story, I don't think that does. I don't think that means it's not historical. Um, even so, we don't have a lot of 
other extra biblical references to Job? In Ezekiel, at one point, uh, the Lord says to Ezekiel, "Look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to help these people, even if Abraham were asking me, even if Moses were asking me, even if Job were asking me. I'm not going to help these people." So that is an historical reference, and Job's name is placed alongside Abraham and, and Moses. And then you have one reference in the New Testament in the book of James, highlighting Job's perseverance and his faithfulness. Chapter 2, verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? None like him. A blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me. So God takes responsibility. Even though he's, because he's given free reign to Satan, he's the one who gave free reign. And ultimately, God takes the rap for the evil that Satan commits because Satan has been given this freedom. You incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So what's God doing here? What is God doing here with Satan and Job? You could say he's using Job, right? He's using him. He's using him to show that faith and fear in God, the right kind of reverential fear, is really very possible. And, and the more that Job has taken away and yet that faith remains, Job is proving how completely free he is to trust God. So when Job feels this uh, overwhelming sense of bondage and locked in and frozen out and abandoned by God, the silence of God, when Job experiences and feels that most intensely, he's actually most free proving that his trust in God is genuine, that his faith in God is real, that it's not dependent upon his best life now, but it's dependent upon God. Does that make sense? If it didn't, you probably wouldn't feel free to interject probably haven't created that atmosphere. Um, let's keep with the story for a moment. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women, as one as of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. God has taken, allowed everything to be taken away, and Job still is in that state of worship, trust, faith, a refusal to curse God, even though those closest to him are saying, just curse God and die. There's a resilience here in Job that's, that's remarkable. God is having his way with the righteous. Oh, yeah, that is a sobering picture. We may not wish to know this picture. <laughs> that God, too, will have his way with us. It's one of the, one of, uh, I think Virginia would agree with me that one of the best books we know for dealing with loss is Jerry Sitzer's book, A Grace Disguised. Jerry teaches theology at Whitworth uh, University in Spokane, Washington. He is a theology and New Testament guy. And uh, this book is about the loss of his, his wife, his mother, and his daughter in a, a car crash. Um, they were coming home from uh, a um, school outing, uh, visiting an Indian reservation, and were hit head-on by a, a drunk driver who, um, in the end, uh, was not... Uh, he was charged, but uh, he was exonerated because they couldn't actually prove that he was behind the wheel. Uh, you know, just a, a, uh, the prosecutor must have thought that it was a slam dunk case and somehow the defense was able to argue and sow enough seeds of doubt. But he describes this uh, the night before the accident um, when Linda, uh, you just let me read this from the book. At the core of loss is the frightening truth of our mortality. We are creatures made of dust. Life on earth can be and often is wonderful. But in the end, all of us die. And during the last few months of Linda's life, she reached a new level of contentment and gratitude that she had not known before. She managed the home well, cared for her, our four children, and homeschooled the oldest too. These responsibilities demanded a great deal from her, but they also brought her great joy. She was learning how to handle the frustrations and the disappointments of being a wife and a mother with high ideals and expectations. She was also so excited about motherhood, in fact, that she suggested we adopt a child with special needs and moved us through the adoption process. The adoption agency approved us for adoption the day before the accident. She also found great satisfaction in her work as the music director of a professional children's choir 
and she had been hired only a few weeks before her death as the paid soprano soloist at our church. The night before the accident, Linda returned home from choir rehearsal at 10 p.m. We had hot chocolate together and crawled into bed where we talked and laughed until 12.30 a.m. At the end of our conversation, she said to me, Jerry, I can't imagine life being any better than it is right now. It is so wonderful to me. I am overcome by the goodness of God. Less than one day later, she was dead. The accident set off a silent scream of pain inside my soul. That scream was so loud that I could hardly hear another sound, not for a long time. And I could not imagine that I would hear any sound but the scream of pain for the rest of my life. You can't study Job casually. You know, you just can't. Uh, I'm not at a particular stage in life right now where I feel a lot of angst. Um, I'm not leading this study because I'm trying to answer questions for myself from the book of Job. Uh, I feel a little bit like a, a practitioner um, presented with a really difficult case. Um, and you can't become so emotionally involved in the case that you lose the perspective of the practitioner. That, I think, is a good time to study Job. It's a good time to study Job when, when you would say, well, you know, life is good. The Lord is blessing. I'm grateful. Uh, So, you know, I, I invite you to kind of get into uh, the book of Job and to, to read it. Um, there's a lot here that's so provocative. You know, Eldad, Bildad, and Zophar show up, his three friends. And they're drawn from various regions. Um, one from Palestine, um, the other from the land of Judah. To I mean, it's an interesting mix of people. Um, and these three wait with Job for seven days in silence. They respect the pain. He's on the ash heap, scraping his sores, totally destitute, feeling friendless and abandoned by God. A movie you might want to see in conjunction with this is Silence. Um, the description of these uh, Jesuit priests trying to make headway in Japan um, who end up uh, recanting their faith. Um, the movie is entitled Silence. And that's certainly one of the issues here that Job wrestles with, the silence of God and um, how to respond to that. If the, the shape of the, the structure of the book um, is a repeated pattern where uh, Job breaks the silence and then Eliphaz builds out, and so far they respond. And some of what they say in response is good, and in some borders it become well, we'll see. We'll look at that. But there's three cycles of that. And as they seem to run out of steam, Job seems to be building. The longer he talks, 
the more he seems to move into wisdom. He becomes a little less intense and on the edge and more resolute, more profoundly understanding of not what's going on, but how he needs to respond. And then in the 28th chapter of Job, you just have a beautiful poetry to wisdom and to the wisdom of man, God-given wisdom of man. And then 29 and 30, Job talks about righteousness, how he has perceived what it is to fear the Lord, to turn away from evil, what this looks like and what he wouldn't do and what he would do. And then just at the point where you're really ready for uh, God to speak, you know that's coming, uh, Elihu, this sophomoric spiritual pietist, comes into play with uh, just a lengthy soliloquy that you just feel like saying, shut up, stop. And that, I think, dramatically has been put together so that we really, by the time the Lord speaks in the thunderstorm, by the time he speaks and you know the rocks are ripped, by the time he speaks, we really want to hear him. We want to hear from Yahweh. We want to hear from God. I have this, uh, I am very, I don't know how to explain this, I am very defensive for Job. I don't think Job's a problem. I think Job is very, very good. I think he's right in everything he says. He has to learn. He has to grow. And he does through this process. But Job is, uh, he's making me think of Jesus, who too illustrated righteousness, who too entered the cosmic battle with Satan. In the end, Job is vindicated by a restoration of all God's blessings brought back, as it were. And in the end, Jesus is vindicated by the resurrection. That's why I think the gospel is in the book of Job. It's kind of a parable pointing to Jesus yet to come. May the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy. And as we put our hope in him, may our hope abound in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.